I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories. I'm your host, Jem Daduchu, and what we do on this podcast is we take a piece of pop culture and reveal the real history behind it. Now, this time round, it's pretty easy because it's very pop and it's very history. We're talking about Eurovision, which means we're going to be talking about movies. We're going to be talking about politics. We're going to be talking about European conflict, and we're going to be talking about songs. Lots and lots of songs. The composer is Yves Barbieu, and they got four languages in Belgium, and they're singing in an imaginary one. So, this is the fascinating thing. If you are European, you know what I'm talking about. But if we have any listeners in America, right now you're going, what? What's, what's this thing? Now, maybe you've listened to or seen, I should say, the Netflix movie. One day I shall win the Eurovision Song Contest and none of you will laugh at me then. Which came out in 2020. More on why that's weird and almost a joke in itself in a minute. But we've got the Eurovision Song Contest, the story of fire saga. So <laughs> let me sort of break all this stuff down for you. There is a competition pretty much every year, across the whole of Europe and beyond, where every country produces a completely new song. Then everybody basically gets together for one night, each country sings its song, and then there is voting on which one is the best. And whoever wins, there's then this the honour of hosting the Eurovision Song Contest the following year. So everything moves year in, year out to the new place, wherever it may be. And this has been going on. Well, this is the year. See if you can guess the year. This is the year of the Suez Crisis, where multiple European forces invade Egypt to take over the Suez Canal that NASA has just nationalized for Egypt. This is largely seen as the end, the full stop to the British Empire. It's also the same year that Elvis has his first ever hit, Heartbreak Hotel. And it is the first year that Eurovision is broadcast. So when you put all those things together, you realize it's quite old. The answer is 1956. That's when all this stuff happened. And what was going on? 
is there was an organization called the European Broadcast Union. And this was basically an opportunity as this very young medium called television was spreading across Western Europe. There was an idea to keep everybody together, to sort of show the commonalities between these different countries. And so in the very first one in 1956, there was a grand total of seven countries. That was it, seven countries. And they decided kind of arbitrarily to just do the first one in Switzerland and Switzerland won, which meant that they got to do it the next year as well. So this was very small beer from the very beginning. But by the 1960s, we're getting up to about 18 countries. In 1973, we get Israel joining. This was controversial for several reasons. First of all, 1973, the sort of spring of 1973, was less than a year after the Munich Olympics, where there had been that horrific terrorist attack, particularly focused on the Israeli athletes. And there was genuine worry. There was suddenly heightened concern, understandable, security measures because Israel's now involved. There was also the, you can't really argue with this argument, that Israel isn't in Europe. The argument back was basically, but culturally it is. It doesn't have any friends in the Middle East, particularly in by 1973. So yeah, let's make them be part of the gang. And also some North African countries, which let's face it, were closer to Europe than Israel was, was there by the 1970s as well. And then we get the collapse of the Soviet Union, the crumbling of the Berlin Wall and the Iron Curtain and all these other barriers. And this suddenly led to an explosion in the 1990s of basically everybody joining in. Now we've got Ukraine, Belarusia, Estonia, Latvia, so on and so forth. All these different countries suddenly being brought in. And what was 20, 25 country submissions was suddenly over 40. And people realized nobody is going to stay up to watch all of these. And so in the 1990s, we basically get the creation of rounds where there can be sort of like semifinals and, and things like that. And what's interesting is it, this is all kind of rigged because some of the original founders who put in more money than other countries they're guaranteed to be in the big final on the Saturday night. So, for example, Britain, okay? Britain is part of the Eurovision. They've won on a number of occasions. There she is. She's the winner. Katrina, and away. And they pay a fair chunk towards Eurovision, and so they're always in the final. But coming on to this in a little bit later, because of politics, Certainly in the last 10 years, Britain has done abysmally. It doesn't matter what performance they put in, what song they create, they're basically hammered. There are occasions where they get the almost legendary nil point. And the United Kingdom gets from the public zero points. So it's the other thing. It's it's broadcast in local broadcasters, obviously broadcast it in their own language. But you have presenters who invariably speak in French first and then English because 
if you want a symbol of Europeanness and why some people in Britain were kind of annoyed at the EU, Eurovision is, if you like, a poppy, silly version of why some people got angry at Europe. And that's the thing. The way I've described it is, look, everybody writes an original song. They present it and clearly, you know, may the best song win is something that never happens in Eurovision. There is too much politics going on. So this idea was, as I said back in 1956, is to unify. But actually, what it tends to do is show how different parts of Europe are to each other. And also, lasting animosities or simmering disagreements, frozen conflicts, are there to be seen in the scoring patterns of stuff around silly pop tunes. So, one of the things this was an example of in the 1950s, Eurovision, with its sort of like birth of it, was this desire, like the EU originally, the EEC, is to try and get Europe to think together. Again, one of the criticisms that people were giving during the whole Brexit debate is that Europe wants to become a federalized state, like in America. I keep saying America, but really it is the technical name and the correct name is the United States of America. And if there's one debate that's just never going to die in America, what's more important? Federal, i.e. The, the sort of like governmental rules or my local state rules. It is complicated not getting into that, but you could see how there might be a desire to make Europe the same as America, except it doesn't work because, you know, in America, at least everybody can agree that the language, the main language should indeed be English, whereas there's no way the French are going to be speaking English. Germans are a bit more open about it. Lots of the smaller countries positively encourage speaking English. There have been times when I have been in Amsterdam where street cleaners speak better English than your average street cleaner, English street cleaner in London. It's embarrassing. Scandinavia also knows that people are not going to be learning Norwegian or Swedish around the world. So, yes, of course, they're incredibly proud of their own languages, but they will happily learn an entire other language. But yes, it's like France, Italy, Spain, countries that are notoriously not going to learn English, but hey, that's okay. We're not going to bother learning your languages either. So, yeah, it becomes a horrible mess. But I'm going to, I know generally with these, I start off with uh, the pop culture and then I move into the history. But with this one, it's going to be one of the rare, and occasionally I start with history and it leads us into the pop culture. But this time round, there's no other way of doing it. I'm going to have to bounce backwards and forwards because, again, in the 1950s, there was a genuine worry about what happens next. Because at the end of World War II, countries that were not part of the Soviet Union are now behind the Iron Curtain. Countries like, well, Czechoslovakia, they're now two separate countries today. Poland, for example. These countries, we just lost behind this barrier, basically. And it was scary in Europe. There was 21 years between World War I and World War II. So, Tracking that forwards at the end of World War II, 1945, that means could there be another war in 1966? There were troops bearing down on each other, both sides of the Iron Curtain, and now there were nuclear weapons as well. And the thing is this, 
I am a very rare generation where I have grown up with basically no war in Europe. The interesting thing is, in the 1990s, there was the sort of the war in the Balkans, the Balkans War. You know, as as things were sort of breaking up, as the old Yugoslavia was sort of like breaking up, you had attacks from Serbia on Bosnia, and you also had the Croats fighting in there as well. It was a horrible ethnic mess, which brought a whole new terrible phrase to the world: ethnic cleansing. Not quite genocide, absolutely. A humanitarian crime. So that was happening in the 1990s. But people tended to think that because it's sort of tucked over there in the Balkans, and it was sort of a direct response to central authority of like the Soviet Union, the, the sort of the Iron Curtain fading away, it sort of didn't count. People were still talking about this is the longest period of peace in in Western European history, and they're right, kind of. But that was a real war. Because now, obviously, I'm recording this in 2020. There's war between Russia and Ukraine, and everybody considers that a war. But the fighting is even further east than what was going on in the Balkans, and I'm going to say the Balkans was even more vicious as well. So I'm not going to get into all of that, but that was happening. Obviously, all of both of these are happening in your lifetimes. But generally, Britain was safe. Paris wasn't under siege. Berlin had been unified again from a war. And was fine from attack, but look, before the two world wars, we got the eighteen seventy eighteen seventy one Franco Prussian War, where Paris was besieged. They ended up having to eat the contents of the Parisian Zoo because they were running out of food and rations. That's how desperate it got for the French. Rewind, maybe sort of twenty years or so earlier, you've got the Crimean War. We're sort of back in Ukraine, sort of. Then, of course, you only have to go back a few years before that, and you've got twenty-five years of European war with the Napoleonic Wars. The English have reached Waterloo. Good, prepare to attack. Very well. Or revolutionary wars, whatever you want to call them. Rewind before that, and you've got things like. The wars of Austrian succession, the wars of Spanish succession. There's the Seven Years' War. There's the Thirty Years' War. There's the Eighty Years' War, and of course, there's the Hundred Years' War. I'm not making up the name of any of these wars, by the way, but clearly it shows you that with alarming and desperate regularity, Europe would convulse into violent conflict. Cities would be burnt, populations would be denuded. There would be battles across the continent. It was terrible, awful stuff. And what 1945 seemed to do is draw a line under this. But everybody knew it could go the other way. The decision makers of the 1950s were invariably the soldiers or the civilians being bombed in World War Two. So everybody was. Painfully aware of how easy it was for Europe to tear itself to pieces, and indeed, one of the arguments for the EU is the more everybody is sort of bound together, the harder it is for people to start having wars with each other. And certainly, two of the biggest clashes in the whole of European history is Germany and France, and they have not crossed swords since 1945. So, in that regard, it works brilliantly. For Europe, so all of that is in the background of Eurovision. But this, this is the thing. My name is Jim Deducci.
It's not exactly Anglo-Saxon. The reality is, I am the son of immigrants. Now, my voice does not give it away. I sound as English as English could be. But neither of my parents were born here. Look, I'm as British as Queen Victoria! So your father's German, you're half German, and you're married a German? Indeed, my mother still has the passport of her original country. She is uh, definitely an immigrant. My father actually transitioned into British, British citizenship. So, yeah, I've got lots of let's use the term, foreigners in the family. And as a kid watching Eurovision, my father is Turkish, and I will never forget the time when he was just howling with laughter. But of course, none of us could speak Turkish, so I'm, I'm saying, look, what, what's so funny? And it was, basically, it was this Turkish man singing into a microphone. It was clearly a great love ballad. It was sort of like an epic, oomphy ballad. And he was saying, well, the reason why my father was singing is going, he is talking about his love of green bottles. And it's like, if you didn't know the words, you would assume that this was like, how much I love you. I've loved you all my life. You are the woman of my dreams, that kind of stuff. No, no, it's about green bottles, apparently. And my sister-in-law is Greek. And one of the great political machinations of Eurovision is Greece and Cyprus are very connected. Northern Cyprus, the Republic of Northern Cyprus, is not recognized by any country other than Turkey because it was invaded by Turkey in the 1970s. So it's a sort of one of these countries that doesn't really exist and everybody else has turned their sort of like shoulder on them so they don't get to play in eurovision but the rest of cyprus does and and therefore invariably the maximum score you can get from a country so so basically they go around each country and say who are you going to give two points for four points for six points for eight points etc and the maximum score you can get is 12 points and invariably cyprus and greece will give each other 12 points. I'm taking a little bet points. here. They'll give 10 to Ireland and 12 to Cyprus. Oh, they've given 10 to the United, United Kingdom. Yippee. United Kingdom, 10 points. Uh, Cyprus. Oh, well, no change there then. Cyprus, 12 points. Now, look, occasionally Greece will come out with a banging tune that everybody loves, at which point. You know, they might well win the whole thing, and maybe they should have deserved 12 points from Cyprus. But it's kind of a guaranteed swap that goes on there. And funnily enough, Greece very rarely gives a lot of points to Turkey, because they hate each other. Turkey, Now there's a turn-up. I said, there's a turn-up for the book. And so, while these songs are... For example, singing about a green bottle. It's the lasting enmity of the history that actually judges the scoring. So, in a way, it shows you the fracture points and the political machinations and history of Europe far better than reading a textbook on European conflicts 1500 to 1945. Quite often, countries that nobody's offended by can win. A great example in the 1990s is Ireland. Well, they had some great tunes. I'm, I'm not taking that away from Ireland. But also, you know, nobody's got strong opinions about Ireland. You know, the, the people of Finland, the only thing they know about Ireland is sort of like the, the Celtic tourist board type stuff. And that's about it. And so they had some glorious ballads. They really leaned into the whole sort of like Celtic thing. And they won loads in the 1990s, which is surprising 
surprising because Ireland's obviously a very small country with not a huge either political or cultural impact on the whole of Europe. You know, it's global reach and that kind of stuff. But if you like, here's the thing. And, and another thing to sort of like prove how Eurovision is influenced by politics rather than by songs is let's look at a moment for Britain. Now, the biggest music industry in the world is America. But Britain is number two. And it kind of doesn't matter which decade we're talking about. Britain's got some very popular international singer-songwriters, bands, etc. Let's give the Eurovision a few years to get rolling. Let's get into the 1960s. And of course, we've got the classic of, we've got the Beatles, we've got the Rolling Stones, we've got the Kinks, etc. Massive, massive bands around the world. Everybody loves their tunes. Hugely influential. So, one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. If the Beatles had decided to do Eurovision in, let's say, 1965, guaranteed to win. But none of these sort of like recognizable big name brands ever bothered to do it, you know. And look, it wasn't just the 60s. I'm just going to quickly roll through, you know. In the 70s, you've got things like Queen, you've got the Sex Pistols, you've got Led Zeppelin. You know, these are big, influential bands that everybody sort of like heard of and loved, although the Sex Pistols could never possibly do Eurovision. But Queen could have fitted quite nicely in there. Eighties, we got Duran Duran, we got Depeche Mode, we got Boy George, you know, all these sort of like eighties bands. 
90s, we've got Oasis and Blur and the slightly unusually named Scottish band Texas. But they were huge in the 1990s. Take that, Robbie Williams. Massive, massive record shifters in the 90s. And then on into the new millennium, you know, it could be Coldplay, it could be Ed Sheeran, it could be Adele. These people shift records. Metaphorically speaking, who buys vinyl anymore? Although I know it's still a thing. Britain wins, hands down, please. You know, I've just sort of rolled out. I don't think you probably love all the bands I've just mentioned, but you, there's some of those you're going to like. And please tell me the sort of like the mega hitters from Germany from the 1960s to now. Apart from, apart from 99 balloons, you're going to find it hard. And Rock Me Amadeus, by the way, was Austrian, not German. You can see that Britain should be winning this hands down all the time. And look, they have had winners. A really weird one, 1969. So again, Britain's hot. Britain's on a roll at this time. And Lulu, <laughs> sorry, this is so sorry, with Boom Banger Bang, which is about as Eurovision a name as you could possibly get. That is a real name. She was joint winner. Now, the insane thing about 1969 is they managed to get a four-way tie of Eurovision. Because it's Eurovision is the best way that I can explain it. So, yeah, one of the winners was British there. But you got things like, you know, Bucks Fizz. They made their name with being winners, making your mind up. And they had a bunch of hits in the 1980s. So there's a whole bunch of the Sandy Shaw puppet from a string. Another one. You know, other songs which did terribly in Eurovision have become sort of like monster hits. In Italy, Volare was one of their most poorly scored tracks of all time. But Volare is now just a sort of a standard staple. If you're going to be doing stuff like Frank Sinatra tracks or, you know, you're also probably going to stick in a Volare in there as well. So there are a number of tracks that have sort of like permeated beyond you don't have to have won Eurovision and if you like this is the problem Cliff Richard who could have done it in the 1950s Cliff Richard was basically our version of Elvis Presley and he had hits in the 50s 60s 70s and 80s he even had sort of like the uh, Millennium Song he's got a Christmas sort of like record Mistletoe and Wine he's been big for a long time and he did do Eurovision with Congratulations which is a song that most people in, in Britain have heard of but that didn't win so yeah you don't have to win eurovision song contest to get the the big bucks as it were you know some of these songs sort of like outlast them but of course i'm going to have to talk about the biggest most successful thing that's ever come out of eurovision abba and 1974's waterloo <laughs> now the thing is i've, I've already done a whole one of the earliest episodes was ABBA's Money, Money, Money. And I talk a bit about how they started off in Eurovision. But this is one where Waterloo, what was genius is they were singing in English. And, and this is the thing that they've noticed that if you sing in your own language, you will appeal to your own people. But again, how many people around Europe are fluent in Finnish outside of Finland? You know, you are sort of hampering yourself. And so it was agreed that you could sing in English or French, but let's face it, English is going to be the easier one or the most common one. And so 
you know, you have a bunch of Swedes who, you know, are not in any way culturally associated either with England or with the Battle of Waterloo. Sweden had nothing to do with that. It was Dutch and British troops fighting the French, and then the Prussians turn up, sort of Germany. So, yeah, none of that involves Sweden. And so what's this got to do with Sweden? But not only was it a huge hit and wins Eurovision, it becomes a monster hit, but they're not a one-hit wonder. They become dominating pop music for the whole of the 70s into the early 80s, and indeed in 2021, releasing in new music. And, and of course, there's the movies based on the musical soundstage, theatrical thing, Mamma Mia!, still minting money for them. It's just insane that they've had this month. Well, it's not insane. They're incredibly well-written, beautifully orchestrated pop music. And it is worth remembering, people get sniffy about pop music. Pop means popular. That's what pop culture is, after all. It means people like it. And not everybody wants experimental jazz or thrash metal or dubstep. You know, I don't have a problem. I, I hate it when people turn around and say, I don't like that type of music. It's like, no, there are good bits of every type of music. You just don't like that particular artist. You know, classical music. Oh, you can't dance to classical music. Well, you know, you can dance a waltz to it. You know, some of them are literally called waltzes. You can't really fill a dance floor with Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, but there's been people who've kind of jazzed up and funked up various pieces of classical music. By the way, music is the hardest thing to sort of like pump out there in terms of sound clips. Uh, you get lots of sort of edginess, people saying, oh, you're sort of like breaching copyright and stuff like that. I have got no idea what Greg is going to do this time around. We, I'm sure we'll get a few little snippets of music, but other sound bites, etc. So <laughs> I'm now going to bring it back to the Eurovision movie that came out in 2020. Will Ferrell was asked about why he did this movie. And also he was having to explain, like I am, to Americans what on earth Eurovision is all about. It turns out he's either he's married to somebody from Europe or he's got family from like Scandinavia or something. And so he sort of like realized it was kind of a big deal. There are lots of people in Europe, by the way, who have Eurovision parties. So it because of time differences, etc., it goes on to, in terms of UK time, probably close to midnight by the time the final scores are done. Although the actual show starts at about sort of eight in the evening. So it's a whole evening. So you, you might get friends around, you might get drinks in, you know, Twitter goes mental with the hashtag Eurovision because, you know, people are sort of like laughing at different acts or, you know, performances or interpretations and things like that, all sometimes saying that they're, that they're awesome. So this is starring Will Ferrell and Rachel McAdams. Look, it's not going to be elves that get us into the song contest this year. It's going to be the perfect song. Plus elves. Now, I like to get ladies into this because I do talk a lot about the guys. Rachel McAdams, I'm sort of special shout out to her. You know, she has done some really serious dramas, like, like Spotlight, for example, one of the most serious movies in the last 10 years. But, you know, she's more than happy to be funny in movies like this or Games Night. And personally, I think there is nothing sexier than a beautiful woman who is also trying to go for the laughs. One of my first crushes as a kid was Madeleine Kahn, you know, things like Young Frankenstein and Blazing Saddles, because 
you know, she's a, a beautiful woman, but you know, my God, she's going for the loss and she's nailing it every time. And, and so that, that particular package for me is what works for me. Okay. Just saying. So Rachel McAdams, I'm a huge fan. You've done some amazing stuff and also really diverse stuff. So unlike Will Ferrell, who, you know, is really known for his comedies, she is known as a serious actress as well. It's understandable why the two of them would go together, but why? They decided to do a, a movie about Eurovision is a bit weird. I understand why Netflix does it, because obviously in America, most people think, well, Netflix is Netflix and it sort of caters to the American market. America is just one of the markets that Netflix has to cater to. I've done stuff on Dark, which was the first German language TV series produced for Netflix specifically. Squid Game, which obviously everybody went crazy for in 2021, all in Korean. So yeah, the point here is that they want to appeal to as broad an audience as possible. This is why Red Notice, just quick shout out to the movie Red Notice with Gal Gadot and The Rock. You got the idea? For all I know, you, you could be the bad guy and I could be the, the other bad guy. I'm really starting to not like you. The point is, that movie is so bland because it's trying to appeal to not only every demographic, but it's also every country. So you get sort of like wisecracks that you can tell are meant to be a joke, but they're so generic, there's no bite to them whatsoever. The cultural references are so broad, you know, got references to Indiana Jones. Now, look, I love Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's an amazing movie. But by the time Red Notice came out, that is a 40 year old reference. Really? So anyway, look, you know, so yeah, Netflix tries to appeal as broadly as possible. And I would say Eurovision is, it's okay. It's got some real laughs in it. And it's got some real love to the Eurovision Song Contest. But it does not need two hours. You know, I had genuine belly laughs, but genuine belly laughs like every 15 minutes. It needs at least half an hour taken out of this movie. It just goes on too long. And some of the sort of side plots aren't funny at all. Some of them lead up to sort of some hilarious gags, which, you know, chef's kiss, just great stuff. But there ain't enough of it in there. And also, as I pointed out, things can get ridiculous in Eurovision. You know, what, you know, particularly in things like the 1970s, what was considered hot in Germany was not what was filling things like the, the, the top 10 list in America or Britain or indeed in Germany. It was sort of like very Germanic and very silly. So there's a little nod to the ridiculous sort of set pieces that you sometimes get in Eurovision, but not nearly enough. Like I say, it's so nice to Eurovision, it could have skewered it a bit more. You know, if we're willing to do political satire, we can absolutely satirize Eurovision. Somebody strapping on an entire budgie outfit as they sort of like rap or something like that would be something you might see on Eurovision and also would be a funny commentary on it, too. So, yeah, I'm not going to turn around and say, oh, this is a must watch. But hey, you got Netflix, you can watch it for free and you will laugh. At, at least at some point in it has a great joke about the sort of superstitions of Scandinavia are kind of taken seriously. There was this one couple in Iceland where uh, this is all set in Iceland, by the way. There was one couple who got married by basically as a sort of uh, a pagan priest in Iceland as a joke and then found out it was legally binding. They're now married. You know, there are stories of trolls in places like Norway and Sweden, which are sort of taken as seriously as, as sort of like Neanderthals in, in other places. You know, it's sort of part of this integral folklore. And there are these wonderful little 
elf houses that you can get in Scandinavia, but particularly in Iceland, these sort of tiny little houses, wooden house fronts, sort of like stuck to the sides of like uh, little alcoves or like little small little cliffs, cliff sides and things like that. And people will sort of like give them offerings, you know, it's like rubbing a lucky rabbit's foot or a four-leaf clover. It's the same kind of silly superstition, but you know, giving you a little offering there. Why not? There is a great joke about that. That is probably my favorite joke in the whole thing. I say no, say no more about that. So yeah, if you want a sort of a starter's guide to Eurovision, then Eurovision Song Contest, the story of Fire Saga. Fire Saga is the name of the band that Will Ferrell and Rachel McAdams set up. They're sort of siblings and they sort of always wanted to be in Eurovision. It's what they dream to do. And they end up singing. They come from a town called Huavik. And they end up singing a, an amazing song. It, it, it is one of these sort of like banging sort of ballads that you'll get from Eurovision. It was beautifully created. But here is, the sh I mean, it is a just a really beautiful ballad sung beautifully. And it ends up getting nominated for an Oscar for best song. Oh, just blows my mind. I think that's probably the only Oscar from any Will Ferrell fronted comedy that's ever been sort of like nominated. But but yeah, good tune. I'm going to say that about it. But yeah, look, a little bit on the politics again. I mean, I don't know whether you consider this politics or not, but it's seen very much as an LGBTQ sort of friendly environment. So as I mentioned, in 1973, we get Israel, and yet we get Dana International in 1998 being the first trans woman to ever enter the contest. This is the Israeli entry, and she wins. And it's a good tune, and she's sort of like this this great kind of spokesperson for sort of trans rights and also just sort of alternative living rights. And just it's just it was just lovely, okay? And there's been other sort of like openly trans, openly gay, openly bisexual. There was a lesbian kiss on one occasion where one of the female singers walks back to one of the female backing singers and sort of gives her a kiss. And this causes problems in countries like Russia, where it's criminalized. Obviously, in the Middle East, that's also a problem. But China in 2018 ended up just starting. They used to run it because, you know, it's kind of fun and you know, it's just a way to sort of like have an evening of music. But because they kept being these references to LGBTQ stuff, they ended up just cutting it, sort of talking about abnormal behavior uh, and sort of other sort of equally odious stuff going on there. But, you know, there are echoes, horrible echoes. So, for example, in 2016... Ukraine sings a song called 1944. So there, there are a lot of dates in that sentence. I apologize. But one of the things in Crimea is for centuries, there was a group called the Crimean Tatars, which actually were a part of the Ottoman Empire and a kind of a sort of hangover from when the Mongols had been in the area. And in 1944, Joseph Stalin deported them all. Ethnic cleansing again. This is a matter of fact. There are no Tatars in Crimea, and yet there were for centuries. I don't suggest you go at the moment. But yeah, that, that's what happened. And, you know, you shouldn't necessarily be talking about this political stuff in a song, but Ukraine decided to go for it. It really angered Russia. And 
Ukraine won, which meant that in 2017, it's now in Ukraine. By that point, Crimea has been partitioned by Russia. This is obviously the sort of the boiling point that leads to the war in 2022. And Russia doesn't end up going to that particular con. So in 2017, when it's held in Ukraine, because they won in 2016, you've got Russia sort of boycotting it. And there've been other instances of countries either boycotting it or being seen as persona non grata. Funnily enough, after the Brexit vote in Britain, we get nil point because clearly we don't love Europe, whereas lots of us here in, in, in Britain do. But yeah, of course, we're going to get punished for that. So yeah, you get various countries voting for each other. It's all very political. They tried to change it. They tried to say, look, some of it is going to be by actual official voters rather than the popular vote. But in the end, in Britain, for decades, there was this wonderful Irish broadcaster called Terry Wogan. Occasionally in the course of my discourse, and for probably for the next two, three months, you may be aware of certain gaps in the, the free flow of the badinage, and that is because my hands are not doing what my brain tells them to. And my brain isn't in any great state either. He was on TV and radio, had this great chat show, everybody tuned in to Wogan, and he was just this, he was kind of like your, your sort of like really jolly uncle. That was kind of his image. Everybody, you know, he did lots of work for charity. He was just a great guy. He passed away a while ago. But he did this for years and years and years. But then there was one year where the voting was so biased. He, you know, he he would often make jokes about it. But he basically said, "I'm not." He on during the actual broadcast, he said, "I'm not going to do this from now on. That this isn't a competition about songs anymore. It's only about the politics." So you now got Graham Norton, another Irish broadcaster who sort of like made his living in Britain, which kind of like your, well, your gay fun uncle. And he's been doing an excellent job of it. But you can you can just it's like the bare nakedness of it all is just weird. And and like the other inadvertent joke about the Eurovision Song Contest, the story of Fire Saga. The, the movie that came out in 2020 is that came out in the year, obviously, of first year of COVID. And because of travel restrictions and lockdown, that is the only year from 1956 to today. It is the only year that the Eurovision Song Contest didn't happen. So the movie about the thing came out the one year the thing wasn't happening again. So Eurovision. So there we go. We've talked about sort of like gay rights, politics, centuries of European warfare, songs, hits, etc. Eurovision is it's it's a marvelous mess. You could say it is the perfect description of Europe because the differences are huge, but the feelings are very positive and people are trying to muddle through. Yes, people are proud of their own countries and yes, they may fundamentally hate their neighbors. But do you know what? You know, we're, we're going to pretend that isn't a big deal for one night. And that really is what the EU is like. So thank you very much for listening. Look, I'm at Jem Daduchu on Twitter. Feel free to reach out to me. I take requests. I've had people sort of say, could you do one on this? Do one on that. This was actually a request by Greg, the editor. Oh my God, it's a dream. He said, do you reckon you could do something on Eurovision? Here it is, Greg. Hope you enjoyed it. So yeah, you feel free to reach out to me on, on Twitter. You might want to say whether you enjoyed this one, whether you disagreed with any of the stuff, whether you think that, you know, a certain group was robbed at any point. Please feel free and please do subscribe. Do spread the love. Like Again, on Twitter, I always sort of pump out messages as to this is the latest episode. Check it out. 
So please help us out here to spread the message. And as always, hopefully speak to you soon. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.